Welcome back to Endurance Icons, where we talk to athletes and people who are crushing it in the world of endurance sports. Today, we're excited to welcome Dr. Rich Trenholm uh, to the podcast. And holy smokes, it's going to take a while to get through this because he does so many things, but he is a doctor. Um, he specializes in sports and exercise medicine. He's co-owner of Reactivate Muskoka. He's podcast host for Canadian Sports and Medicine Review. He's a race director. He's the medical director for Ironman 70.3 Muskoka, and I'm almost running out of breath, but he's also about to leave for the Pan Am Games in Chile as medical support for the triathlete team. Welcome, Rich. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, Total we, have, <laughs> we have so much to talk to you about, but uh, all of this, and you just finished uh, the Wisconsin Ironman. So I thought we'd start there. How was that? How was the training? How was the race? You know, I, I completely love the training um, and the, the experience uh, of doing an Ironman was second to none. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a very svelte, you know, short triathlete. I'm, you know, in probably Clydesdale category for most people, <laughs> but you know, it was, and because of that, I was always thinking, you know, I'm never going to do an Ironman. Ironman is just too long, too much, especially with my job and all the other responsibilities that I do. Uh, just couldn't think I fit it in. And, uh, you know, big shout out to my, uh, my coach, uh, Jess Adam, who kept me on track and she, uh, she was able to, you know, compartmentalize my life and the training around my life. And I, you know, that made it so much uh, more enjoyable. I had like fantastic training partners that obviously make training that much easier and a very supportive community and my uh, uber supportive family to make it, uh, make it all work. Um, and, you know, I didn't really realize how, uh, how much of a uh, community buy-in and an effort that training, you know, training encompasses it. So it's not just me, like, my business partners, the other physicians in my family practice, uh, you know, everybody was on board with me doing this and, and, you know, picked up some slack, uh, that I was dishing out quite freely. <laughs> um, but the, the training was amazing and the race, uh, I was supposed to do Ironman Canada, um, but the wildfires canceled that race, unfortunately, like the week before. It's, it's really kind of funny because I went, I was so mentally prepared for going and doing the mountain passes and all that stuff and dealing with the heat. And then you're like, okay, turn 90 degrees. You're going to go to Ironman in Wisconsin. I know nothing about the course. I don't mm -hmm. even know where Wisconsin is. <laughs> it's just, it was, you know, you go, you go in blind, which was a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, you know, very hilly. Um, I mean, Muskoka is hilly uh, anyway, so it's kind of my training uh, training ground. Uh, but you know, everybody uh, on the day um, really carries you through, and and I never really because I'm so involved in the logistics side of sport of the sport. You know, I'm race director, I'm medical director, and involved uh, you know with uh, with the national team now uh, going to the Pan Am Games. You see stuff from the administrative and logistics side, but you forget. You know uh, the experience as an athlete sometimes because you don't get to race as much and i like i smiled the whole day mm -hmm. and like people were like what is wrong with you you're you're still smiling 
uh, and it just you, 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 the experience of the journey um, was was unbelievable. And just to see the see the finish line come through, my wife was able to put the medal around my neck, and cool. uh, you know it was it was pretty uh, pretty special. So um, yeah, and kind of got the bug. I'm like, okay, when's the next one gonna be? <laughs> <laughs> That is a tough course. I know we did Wisconsin. Yeah. Was it 2021? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I think that it was a deferral because what what race was canceled? I think oh, it was Tromblon. Yeah, Tromblon. Then it was going to be Ironman Canada. And then we got Wisconsin as well. So I feel like that's the, the roll down race that never fails. <laughs> it's always there. Yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah, just but... the bike was so tough. Um, oh yeah so well done yeah. but well, i love thanks. that run course the support through the like bars and stuff there with yeah. all the like yeah. college kids there that was such a fun run course like, like i don't know like honestly what what race director puts together a run that goes through the bars where you can smell nachos and popcorn <laughs> and you're like i can't tolerate this anymore yeah, <laughs> but that's... you know the, the the drunk people uh, you know, on the run course and even on the bike course, there's guys like with their arm out having a beer and they've just <laughs> passed away. And I'm like, oh, come on, guys, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember when I was passing through that section, I was the first half marathon of the of the Ironman. I had some gut issues and it was just not a fun experience to be like yeah. running through that. All of those smells nice while you're like fried <laughs> smell. Yum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I took a I took a little glass of potato chips and I, you know, I took one chip and I couldn't even eat the one chip. So I said, Mark Messier, I can't have, I can't, I can just have one chip. And I couldn't, can't even have one chip. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah. congratulations. That's oh. a, that's a tough course and a, an incredible accomplishment. Your first Ironman. Oh, thanks. That's uh, great. Coming from you guys, that's, that's huge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'd love to dive into your career. Um, mm. Tell us what led you or inspired you to seek your career. Well, I wanted to be a doctor for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, in my whole, uh, it, like everything I did from, you know, being a kid uh, and seeking out opportunities and experiences, whether it was like volunteering at the hospital or like I worked as a medical receptionist through high school and university, um, that, uh, you know, everything was kind of geared to go towards medicine. Like I was never an athlete um, myself. Um, I was involved in sport. I participated as usually like the last guy I picked for most sports. Um so like sports medicine, I didn't even know it existed, honestly, until halfway through my existing career. Um, I went to the University of Guelph. I did human kinetics uh, at the University of Guelph and followed kind of the physiology, biomechanics, anatomy stream. And then I went to, uh, um, I applied a couple of times to medical school. I didn't get into medical school. Uh, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go do my master's. And I did it in biomechanics because I really enjoyed it. And for those of you who are listening, don't know what biomechanics is. It's like physics of human movement. And I did a lot of work with um, uh, Nike uh, in the uh, late, early to the late 90s on their running shoe design, basically putting people on this human pendulum. And we had their foot fixed in a certain degree and had a ground force plate on the wall and we swung them back to a certain distance and slammed them into the wall. And we <laughs> had accelerometers taped up their leg uh, to see uh, force transmission up the up the leg. And 
that kind of physics um, really intrigued me. And so I went away and I did uh, did a master's of biomechanics, um, uh, focusing on uh, foot and ankle mechanics and uh, the impact of orthotics, actually, uh, in figure skaters uh, of all reasons, mainly because I got a, a grant from Skate Canada. But, you know, I, I uh, enjoyed the foot and ankle complex as a, as a mechanical unit. Um, and then after one year of my master's, I got into medical school. And I didn't want to not finish something that I started. So I did first year of med school and I did my second year of my master's uh, and finished up my thesis um, during med school. And I was like, you know, I never knew really what I would do with it. I just wanted to check to finish that part of my life off. And then I went through medical school in McMaster. I uh, moved up to Sudbury for their Northeastern Ontario Family Medicine Program which I moved around Northern Ontario. Uh, my wife's a physician as well. So she and I lived in our back of our Saturn wagon for two years, um, moving around from town to town. Um, and then we settled in here in uh, Huntsville in Muskoka. And when I moved here, I still hadn't done uh, any, any sports medicine. Uh, I did uh, worked in the emergency room. I delivered babies and I did uh, emerge for 10 years. And then I, um, I just gave up delivering babies a couple of years ago, but on one of my, uh, last shifts in the emergency room, uh, a woman came in with a fractured wrist and then her dad was there with her. And it ended up being, uh, Dr. Derek Mackesy, who is a, you know, um, local legend here in Huntsville, but from a Canadian sports medicine point, uh, view, he's like, one of the founding fathers of sports medicine um, in Canada. And, you know, he pulled me aside and said, yeah, you know, you look uh, really comfortable with dealing with bones and joints and stuff. You know, have you ever thought about sports medicine? And I'm like, well, what, like what sports medicine? So he's launched into, you know, what it is. And he works in Barrie or he used to work in Barrie. And now he, he said, well, why don't you come down and spend half a day with me and just see if you like it and we'll go from there. So I went down and, you know, basically put myself through residency while I'm working with him to learn about sports medicine. And, you know, I fell in love with the, the human movement side of things, watching people move and figuring them out mechanistically and physiologically, how they move and the, and the, and the, you know, bit of a ballet of human movement that everybody takes for granted um symmetry and asymmetry and and how people you know move from a to b and up and down and and the uh, the interplay of the different forces and movements that happen at the joints and and it's amazing how the body uh can compensate or adapt to achieve a certain movement and you know as one point going back to sort of um, the whole ironman process you know i'd done triathlons for 2000 and or since 2003 I didn't even know the sport of triathlon existed until I moved to Huntsville and it's kind of a little triathlon mecca here and um you know it really it, it's unbelievably amazing then I see this all the time with my patients about how adaptable uh, the body is and how it can evolve to an ever-growing stress um, that you apply to it, your body will change to basically no matter what you throw at it, as long as you have a plan and a progression, it can change. Um, and so I loved that part. And, and 
you know, I'm a very, you see my hand going like crazy here. I almost be French Canadian, <laughs> but the, and it's the, it's very inspiring. Uh, and, and I love my passion spills over into the patients I see, whether they're, you know, professional athletes, whether they are grandparents that want to play with their grandkids, um, just helping them realize the potential of their body, helping them engage and, and, and believe in themselves to go through the process of rehabilitation and trust the process. Um, that to me is like, you know, unbelievably exciting. And that's what really drives my passion for this, for this part of my job. So, yeah. That's incredible. And I know that one of the conversations we had right at the beginning is there's not many people like you in Canada. Like I have to say, I we recently met because I was referred to you by another doctor mm -hmm. and I was overjoyed. I didn't even know that doctors like you even existed. Like obviously yeah. there's sports like support that you can get in some of the work that you do at Reactivate Muskoka, which we'll get into, but yeah. uh, you have such a unique combination of things. Um, and I'd love to know how long have you been an athlete yourself? <laughs> um, well, like I said, I've participated in sports since, you know, public school and whatnot, like playing soccer and hockey and, but I was never really good. I would say that, you know, that's where the sport of triathlon kind of played into the, I'm not great at any one thing, but I'm good at a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, I'm not a great runner, but I love running from a mechanistic point of view. Like, I feel bad for anybody who has to run with me because I'm analyzing them all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, as a as a more serious athlete, I would say probably the last 25 years. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, tell us a little bit more about Reactivate Muskoka and how, how that began for you. So after I finished my you know pseudo-residency with Dr. Maxey, um, I wrote the national licensing exam for uh, for sports medicine through the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine, and um, I started doing. I started renting a room out of my buddy's chiropractic clinic, um, and uh, you know I would do an hour long or hour and a half long consultation with people, and then I would go and say, okay, you know this is the plan that you need to put into place in order to, you know, increase the mobility and then increase the strength within that mobile range to manage your new mobility. And so I would say, okay, you need, you know, a combination of some chiropractic care for acupuncture and soft tissue release or complement that with, with massage therapy um, and then engage from the exercise point of view with physiotherapy or athletic therapy. And so I'd refer out to, uh, people in our community and you know over time probably the first couple of years people come back and they'd be like yeah I'm, I'm just not better it's I'm still having that problem and then I'd say like and it's a question that a lot of doctors don't ask is you know okay what was physiotherapy for you what was chiropractic care for you well physiotherapy they I went there three times a week I lay in a bed they put a hot pack on me I got the ultrasound and then I left Okay. Or they say, I did some exercises. And when I actually talked to them, okay, well, what exercises were you doing? Well, it's actually a lot of stretching. And, um, and then that was about it. And I did that for 12 weeks, three times a week. I'm like, 
Wow. Okay. So he didn't actually stimulate your body, push your body in order to create an adaptable, evolvable model within the body to change. You just stretched yourself out. It was so that was um that was the point where I'm like, okay, like not that I'm a control freak, but I'm like, I need to have people close by me that I can uh, you know, not only understand and um I don't want to say buy into the model, but it is like they have to believe in the model of movement-based medicine um, and corrective movement patterns and functional training and all this stuff. So, so that you're, you're actually engaging them in a process and it's complete. Like here, I've got physiotherapy, athletic therapy, kinesiology, massage therapy, chiropractic care, you know, uh, myself as sports medicine, we're also a teaching facility for everything that's under under the um, under our roof, but you know, like I'll go into our physio or the gym side of the clinic, and I'll say, you know, pull in the physiotherapist or the athletic therapist, and say, okay, this is what I'm seeing, and I'm dealing with this, you know, person, and I want to show them what I see, uh, um, and then how can we as a team come up with a treatment plan. And I'll pull in a chiropractor and there's sometimes like three or four people in the room here and all working, looking at this person moving. Okay. We're going to like, how do we sculpt the body or how do we help the body get to this state where they can now functionally move? Like my job as a sport doc um, is really figure out what's going on. I can, I, and that's my skill set is, you know, stepping back or looking at the 30,000 foot view and watching people move holistically and then formulating a treatment plan that we can give to the patient and then they can go out and we engage, okay, you're going to start with chiropractic care and some acupuncture so we can, we can actually increase the mobility, stimulate the muscles from a neuromuscular point of view. So they're now ready to go over to physiotherapy or athletic therapy and the body is ready to accept the movements that are being applied to it. I was had a, having a great conversation with a friend today about sort of the overarching philosophies that I have about sports medicine. And, and you know, when somebody's in pain or something's not working, I, it's almost like a three or four-year-old having a temper tantrum. Okay. So if you're in pain, the body's like, I don't want to do this. So what do you do <laughs> with a kid like that? You know, you put them in a chair where they can breathe, relax you know, and, and, and accept what's kind of happening and think it through. And I see that as sort of the mobility work, acupuncture, massage, you know, ART, functional uh, range rehabilitation. And then the parent can go over after the kids calm down a little bit and have a reasonable conversation to teach them the lessons. And that's like physiotherapy or athletic therapy or kinesiology, where they're applying movement-based techniques and reasoning with the body, this is how your body can move. And it can move a little bit and we can move it a little bit more next time and then move it a little bit more the next time and have this progressive plan. And it's amazing that when you do that to see how the body actually responds. Whereas if the person's having a temper, temper tantrum and their body's not ready to be rehabilitated and you go do physiotherapy, it's not gonna work. Conversely, if you go and you give them the time out and you go do the soft tissue, acupuncture, all that stuff, and their body is uh, not taught how to manage things in a calm state, then yeah, you've worked on mobility, but you haven't worked on the stability and the, and the strength that goes along with it. So, you know, this whole 
you know, fluctuating mechanical physiologic system that has to really be in place and, and, um, uh, be, be, uh, engaged with is, is it's, it's unique, but I tell you, it works. I don't, there's no crazy voodoo medicine. I don't burn candles, <laughs> nothing like that. It's just, you know, and having the patient as a central part of that team is key. Like the patient needs to know what's happening to them, what we're going to do with them and getting them to understand the process, the time that's going to take to undo what the body has been exposed to, but the time that uh, that's going to take for them to uh, learn how to move again and, you know, realistic expectations. It's not going to be next week. You know, you're going to take four to six weeks before you start to see meaningful change in yourself with consistent progressive effort. And once you, once they see that, then they're like, okay, as long as I know that's the expectation then then I'm okay. And the, then they, then that, the, the whole engagement and inspiration happens. Hopefully that answered your question. For sure. I feel like we're getting a good look into kind of the lens of your approach to things here. Um, I'd love to know. So when you commonly see a number of endurance athletes, is there some like really common mistakes or errors that a lot of uh, endurance athletes are coming to you with? Is there like some, some common ones that you see? Oh yeah. Um, so my, the most common things that I see with endurance athletes is that they just expect their body to respond to what they're asking it to do by running more, swimming more, biking more. So type A. <laughs> so type A. <laughs> more is more. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, you know, the, 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 you know, I know nutrition's like the fourth discipline and transition's the fifth discipline, but probably the biggest discipline that's missed is strength training. Um, like people go out there expecting their body to, respond like a Ferrari when they've only got a Chevette engine in it. And <laughs> so that. <laughs> like, and that's where people, when that's what, that's what happens when people get injured, they like they're redlining it because they don't have the physical capacity to, to do what they're, to do what they're asking it to do. And, you know, when they get into that red line, you know, one time might not necessarily give them their injury or their, you know, exertional illness. Um, but it's that repeated, like picking away at it. And eventually something just goes. And then you're dealing with an injury that, well, why did this happen? Nothing happened. I just, you know, I just start having this foot problem or this, this knee issue. And well, it's cause you did, you know, this same thing over and over and over again, like thousands of steps, thousands of cycles, thousands of strokes. And, and they're like, okay, now I understand. And honestly, sometimes with like swimmers, it's just the angle of your hand going into the water and engaging that way. It doesn't have to be like huge sweeping changes, but, and, or even, you know, when you get the injury, it doesn't have to be a huge mechanical issue. It's just that repetitive time over time again, and not having the strength systematically to control it. Like not just your rotator cuff, like it's, it's a whole like the, the swimming stroke starts in your leg, kick, arm pull, kick, arm pull. And people are like, what? And then there's a the power transfer through the core 
of that kick that transfers the energy into the into the shoulder and the arm that helps move the body over that planted arm in the water. You're not moving water behind you. You're moving your body over your arm. And unless you've got that core strength on, you know, in a three-dimensional pattern that people, yeah, you, you're going to, you're going to just lose energy through, through um, inefficiencies and, and muscles that don't know how to transfer energy through the system. So from a strength training perspective, what would be some of your recommendations around your favorite, be it exercises and like kind of what would a, the frequency of a program like that look like for a trap? Like we can use a triathlete as an example here, because I know we got lots of triathlon listeners here that'll be jazzed to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. So I would typically say, you know, this time of the year where it's being fall, we're getting going into the off season, you know, I would say you're looking at you know, three or four times a week of a strength program. And as you move into, you know, late winter, early spring, you can transition it down and have more meaningful exercises that are compounded. And by compounded, I mean, you know, multi-system uh, involving a lot of rotational core um, energy transfer from lower leg to upper leg uh, or and vice versa. Um because running is just reverse swimming. It's initiated in the arm and then finishes out in the leg. Um, and, you know, if you have that, uh, you know, if you transition in, in, into the off or into the late off season um, with two days, three days a week of that more functional compounded exercise. And then during the, during the uh, during season, you know, one or two high yield you know, uh, programs to maintain or, you know, focus on core and that whole rotational system through the core. And the core goes from like your shoulders down into your middle of your thighs. So that's, you know, that's the stuff that, uh, that I like. And the stuff like now where it's, you know, four or five times a week, simple, heavy loaded stuff. Uh, and, and, um, uh, and then, you know, chisel it down. It's okay. I'm an analogy guy. Um, I, I don't think I've subjected you to too many yet, but this time of the year, it's like a sculptor that's just taking clay and you're just putting it on into this big, massive structure of your body. And then over the course of the winter, you pare it down to be what you need it to be. And the muscles and the, and the relative strength of one versus the other to create balance for your body. That's where, you know, the progression of the strength training happens. And then uh, in as you transition into more of the volume and the the actual mechanistic uh, swim bike run movements, they further define what's needed, what's not needed. Um, so yeah, it's like building the sculpture year after year again. So I'm gonna look like a massive uh, bodybuilder by the yeah. end of that season. Hundred <laughs> percent. Just an analogy. <laughs> um, I love it. Uh, yeah, that definitely resonates with us. We're big fans of that, like base strength training part and, and periodizing that for sure. Yeah. So love to hear yeah. here on board with that. Uh, two of the other kind of pillars of performance that we're like huge proponents of is around like nutrition and recovery. What are some of your kind of uh, key philosophies or foundations around kind of those two areas? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I tell, uh, I tell a lot of people that, you know, the, the recovery is where you actually get strong, like the, whether it's strength training, or you are uh, going for your swim, bike or run, I mean, that's the stimulus that tells your body, 
wait a second, guys, like I'm asking you to do this. And if the buyer says, well, you know, I don't quite have what you need, then it's going to go through this whole process of uh, applying a stress. Your body will adapt to that stress and then it'll evolve to become ready to accept the next greater stress. And yeah, you go through, you know, cycle of two weeks on one week off or three on one off, whatever, you know, is your, is what your coach or what you're, what you're carrying out because yeah, that you, you, every time you go through that stress, uh, the stress adapt evolve cycle, you're just dipping down a little bit and you accumulate the stress in your body that you need that lower volume or the lower intensity week for that one to do a really deep recovery. Uh, but it's, it's like rolling a snowball really like you're you're rolling it a little bit and then you're you know taking that week just to shave off to make it you know you know round again so you can roll it a bit more instead of it being a square ball and then you just it, it will keep growing and growing and growing as long as you apply it in that you know stress adapt evolve cycle i love it so many analogies coming out we got the clay and now we're into snow <laughs> it's you, don't want, you don't want to hear about my analogies with giving birth on this <laughs> we'll save that for a separate podcast yeah, exactly. bring them out it's all good i don't know how we're gonna weave this into triathlon, but this is this will be interesting um so like we're in a really exciting time in endurance and that people are getting like crazy fast these days we're seeing some of the fastest times in triathlon we've ever seen mm. um is there some uh, like interesting advancements that you've seen kind of in the science of endurance over the last number of years from any of those areas we've talked about, whether it's training, strength training, or any of those recovery or nutrition areas that have really jumped out to you? Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, strength training is becoming much more acceptable uh, and understood. And that probably has the biggest impact on, you know, people getting faster, uh, you know, It'd be an interesting study to take some of the top level triathletes today and putting them on the, uh, on the bikes of, you know, yesteryear or, or, you know, uh, using the nutrition, uh, of yesteryear and seeing how their bodies respond, right? Like, um, it's hard to, it's hard to say how much the, uh, the external, factors have a play like yes i mean over a over an iron man having uh, various aero elements on your bike and having different materials with your wetsuit or your uh, swim skin and they make all the difference but you know uh that I, it's hard to say I, but i think you know fundamentally probably the biggest thing that that's come into play is the is the strength um strength element um then nutritionally, it seems to wax and wane between various elements, and um, you know, looking at uh, looking at products like Morton or um, you know things that are have a uh, that have a easier digestibility factor or the, a delivery system for sugar to get into the body. You know, that's what your body needs is sugar. Um, you know, keeping it simple too, like people taking just salt, shocking shocking <laughs> you know and uh the, you know simple simple elements like that how to keep yourself cool um uh, during the race like uh during the race or before race and what you know is uh, what kind of recovery you need um and what works and what doesn't work and it's funny the there's uh there's a lot of evidence out there that 
the fancy um, recovery techniques, um, you know, the boots, the rollers, the mindful apps, you know, at the base of them all, it forces the athlete to stop and slow down. You know, you can't walk around or go for a run with the Normatec boots on, sorry. <laughs> so, but having them, you know, having the ability for them to, you know, stop and and uh, and let their body recover in that state is is probably doing more than the boots themselves. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's really going to be interesting in the next number of years. I feel like we didn't have a a lot of like triathlon data from a number of years ago, but I feel like everything's tracked so much now. It's going to be so interesting to see in ten or twenty years, like if people are really getting that much better from like a power perspective or is it just continually like yeah because they're running in five hundred dollars one-time use carbon shoes or yeah it, uh, <laughs> or the bikes are just so aero so i think it's going to be yeah. really interesting because there's a lot of sports that have that like data from so many years but i feel like triathlon isn't really one that has a lot of that oh, it's such a new sport relatively yeah. if you think about it so uh but definitely uh there's a lot more um there's a lot more interest in the science of, of this. And, and because we've got many more people working on the physiology and the, and the, you know, the biomechanics of it, that's where we're seeing some big, bigger leaps. Has there been any like big changes in your approach to endurance, uh, sort of, um, philosophies that you kind of follow over the time you've been in it? Like, has anything radically changed across any of those areas or as a whole? Um, I would say, hmm, I'd see there's like way more, you know, recovery techniques and recovery businesses and whatnot that are trying to, you know, capitalize on the recovery boom. But I don't, you know, I, I, I wish that people would just respect rest and recovery for what it is and slowing down and stopping as opposed to having to go like, Oh, I need to pay $85 an hour to go to this clinic to sit in a chair to put some boots on and listen to some soft music, like go home, put your feet up on the couch and watch, you know, mash or cheers or something like that. <laughs> really bad Sunday reruns. Afternoons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After a long run, we, yeah, exactly. we lie too. on the couch and we eat, and then we feel yeah. great on Mondays and don't feel beat up on the weekend. It's exactly. magical. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I think you've demonstrated pretty clearly your expertise, but I thought I'd use myself as a case study. Um, so every four episodes, we do an update sort of on how our training is. And so uh, listeners are pretty aware of my search in terms of trying to figure out what the heck is going on with me. And before I stumbled upon you or was referred to you by a doctor, I had met with a number of different types of doctors and cardiologists with a sliding scale of support, including a number that just said, listen, you know, this has only happened like six or seven times. You're fine. Don't worry about it. To others saying there's absolutely nothing wrong. Um, so really being referred to you is the first time where I said, there's not many people like you that has that like depth of understanding, both of medical science combined with like truly understanding what an Iron Man is and the toll that it takes on the body and, and sort of what that consideration would be. So you asked all the right questions. Uh, we didn't have a in-person meeting. You're in Muskoka. We're about, I don't know, how far is it? Like two hours. Yeah, two hours. So this was over a screen. You were the first person who met remotely and you nailed exactly what was going on, which was confirmed by another doctor. So 
I'd love to know. So that's just how great you are. <laughs> um, but I would love to know um, from your perspective, what's going on with me? Well, um, I think when we talked, um, the the things that you were experiencing was uh, you know a rapid uh, increase in your heart rate. I hope you don't mind me talking. No, no, the, I've the, shared this with the team um, with the podcast. Okay. Um, I wouldn't bring it up if it's not fair game. <laughs> yeah, so like it was uh, you know a, a sudden and unexpected uh, you know increase in your heart rate that happened only in certain situations. Um, uh, and, you know, I think, um, it, it was, it's not one thing with you. And this is kind of, you know, when I look at a body mechanistically, it's very similar to a mechanical problem. Like yours is a mechanical physiologic problem. It's a cumulative, cumulative stress on your body with not only long endurance events, heat, you know, uh, there was, uh, you know, a, a simple tweak in your nutrition. That's probably going to help out a lot. Um, but you know, it was a cumulative, um, multifactorial problem that resulted in your heart rate going through the roof and you think, okay, like this is not normal. Like people have fast heart rates during, during an endurance event, you know, even, even professional triathletes, but it's the acuity of it, how it happened, how it made you feel, especially when you started having that chest heaviness and that chest feeling like that's not normal. That, that to me is, uh, you know, your heart is the muscles of the heart are working harder than they have the capacity to take up oxygen. And so that turns into the, the, the neurologic pain pattern that the brain says, Oh, this is happening in your heart area of that heaviness feeling. And you, then you lower down your exertional, um, stress. And that symptom kind of goes away. And you, 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 you demonstrated this time and time again, that once you, when, once you drop the physiologic load on your body, you could make the symptoms stop. And it was always within, you know, 20 seconds of you stopping a race or you stopping running. And because there's that sudden drop of, you know, of uh, physiologic load on your body. And, you know, it, some people honestly would write this off as anxiety or, mm -hmm. or you know, or, or nervousness, but like you're a professional triathlete, you're, you know, you're at a point in the race where that's shouldn't happen, you know, and, and it, uh, um, it just didn't sit well with me. So the more I questioned you and, you know, looking, looking at the factors of, you know, sodium intake, looking at the factors of heat stress on the body, knowing that heat increases your your heart rate and the, and you've got your blood vessels and your skin dilating, which means that you've got a certain amount of volume inside your blood vessels that is now distributed over a greater volume because you've got blood vessels that are distributing around your body to dissipate heat. But at the same time, you are sweating and you are losing water, but you're trying to replenish with water that is hypovolemic when mean, or not hypovolemic, hypotonic. Uh, with respect to sodium, meaning the sodium concentration of the fluid that you're taking in is lower than what is in your bloodstream. And so, you know, that I can go into hyperhydration and hyponatremia for hours. I, you know, it's, it's a passion area for me, but, you know, basically you just, again, it's like just chipping away at 
lots of little factors in your body until your body physiologically couldn't handle it anymore. And then you had my, myocardial excitation where the muscles of your heart were just ready to yeah, go. And then eventually you, you had hit that stress point that boom, you know, heart rate 220 or 200. And you're like, this doesn't fit. And you're right. It doesn't fit. Um, and then you'll drop that load and your body's like, okay, I can, I'm, I'm recovered. And the load that she's asking me to deal with is not as much and you the symptoms go away. Sorry. The worrisome pattern is that it continually got like each episode seemed to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And like we talked about, you're going to Kona next weekend, which is going to be like the massive accumulation of everything, including now another that is like the emotional load right like this is the world championships this is the first time that you're going and now you got not only the the external environmental stuff with heat and wind and sun and all that stuff that's going to make your body need to respond appropriately and you've got a system that's just sort of teetering on the edge like I, you know, when we talked, I said, you know, I'm really worried that you've got like a physiologic induced or heat induced, um, uh, you know, arrhythmia, funny heartbeat, um, that's really beyond your control. Um, and this is how I want you to manage it on the spot. Like there's lots of ambulances around the, around the course. There's lots of medical people around the course. If this happens, find help right away, because you don't know when it's going to go south. And then that, the worst thing I want is, you know, to read about you in the news because I didn't tell you that. And so that's why we found Dr. Dorian super quick at the sports cardiology in Toronto, a fantastic team there. Like within days, for those of you who are listening and which is very rare, like within a couple of days, I was driving to Toronto to meet with Paul Dorian, which was yeah. incredible. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but it's like that whole spidey sense on me, like something's wrong and you've got three weeks before you're going to put your body to the ultimate test and where it is going to really happen if we're not careful. Mm -hmm. So we talked about, okay, like how can we manage the environmental situation? Well, we can't tell, you know, mother nature to turn down the heat or not make it windy. It'd be awesome if it rains on race day, just so that you are a little bit cooler, but what do we do? Like, how can we mitigate the thermal stress on your body. Well, putting ice in your hat, putting, you know, running with Ziploc bags uh, in your hands with ice, having Ziploc bags that you can shove down your various parts of your body. And um, those things will bode you well. A lot of people will just take a cup of ice and pour it down whatever part. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with that is the ice, when it melts, it goes away. Whereas if you have it in a bag, at least the ice will stay in that spot that you're putting the bag and it'll still be cold water eventually. And then when you get to the next age station, you know, take the whatever, five, 10, 15 seconds, dump it with the water, get a volunteer to put more ice in it and move on. You know, that's external cooling. The other thing that I like people doing when they've got, uh, when they're not uh, very good with heat is, you know, take the Ziploc bag that's got ice and like run it over their skin, like mm -hmm. maximize the capacity for conductive cooling, which is, you know, heat transfer from the body into the ice, um, evaporative cooling. So because you're rubbing the ice on your skin, you're going to get water on your skin and your body will evaporate and that's going to dissipate heat. Um, so this, you know, how can we make this work for you? Also, not just cool from the outside in, but you know, your core temperature is on the inside. Shocker. 
eat ice, take it in, swallow it. And that's, that has been shown lots of times to, uh, to cool you down from the inside. In fact, there's a study that was done uh, looking at the ingestion of slushies. And uh, that's a really, really effective tool to cool people down. And like to the point where I had um, like my um, credit card attached to my Garmin watch. And if I was feeling hot, like I was going to seriously go into a 7-Eleven and get a slushy and, 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 you know, laugh my way past everybody who's just still dying. So it's not bad. And, you know, even at McDonald's, go get a McFlurry or something, <laughs> something like that. But, you know, get cooling, you know, adapting whatever, whatever strategy you have is, uh, is, uh, is important. I want the mid Ironman McFlurry. Now. Yeah. I need it. <laughs> no, that's tremendous advice. And so I've saved all of that going into Kona. And I mean, just thank you for how like quickly you identified what was going on and, and got help, like at least going into and understanding what I'm up mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. is such a big help. Um, and I know that's a number of the athletes, I know mine's a little bit different, but we've talked to a lot of professional athletes on this podcast who actually say that they compete with an arrhythmia. So mm. how it's, how common would you say that seems to be with endurance athletes? Um, I would say it's more common than we know. Um, I think that, uh, it, there's a lot of undiagnosed arrhythmias and, um, and, and people just chalk it up to not feeling well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while, while there's lots of people that, um, are, you know, have diagnosed arrhythmias and they are on medications that can manage it, or they, they can monitor it and they're aware of it. There's lots of people that don't. And, you know, this is where, you know, uh, this is where there's a lot of people who, you know, unfortunately pass away during the swim. Mm -hmm. Um, not only because they've got a sudden cardiac load on top of the psychological um, load of swimming with you know, thousands of other people, and it's unrealized in the moment or even during the training leading into that moment of the cumulative stresses that are applied to the body, like you're you're experiencing, right? Um, there's something called SIPI. I don't know if you guys know about this. It's swimming-induced pulmonary edema. Um, it's really common, um, in people that, uh, that are, uh, that are, you know, in a, in their first triathlon, or they've gone into a triathlon, not knowing what the swim involves. And we joke kind of, uh, regularly at the 70.3 that before doing the, before doing the 70.3, people need to do a swimming test and not swim just in the pool in a wetsuit because all these things have a huge factor. And so what actually the, the, there's a, there's a, um, physiologic neurologic, um, process that happens that causes uh, dilation of the blood vessels in the lungs and causes flooding of fluid into the lungs that impairs oxygen, um, transfer into the body. So even though they're breathing at a regular rate or even an increased rate, there's a block with fluid in the alveoli of the lung, which is where the oxygen transfer happens. And so people can't get oxygen in and people just chalk it up to like, okay, I'm nervous. Like I, I'll be okay. But they're, they're 
their their power just isn't there. They're not, you know, for the amount of uh, effort they're putting out, they're not able to get it because they don't have gas in the tank being oxygen to actually move themselves forward. And, you know, the smart people are the people that within 500 meters of swim start pull out. And people are like, that's crazy. Like, how can people do that when when they've trained all year and they, you know, they're, they're calling it a day after 500 meters. And I'm like, those guys are smart because the, the people that keep going are the people that really could get into trouble, you know, in the moment or even like long-term. And, and for the 70.3 and the races that I cover, you know, I'm always at the start line. I'm always watching, scanning the crowd for that first, you know, 250 meters, however far I can see. And I'm like, pointing picking them out for the kayakers just telling them you know, you got to go look at this person you got to go watch that person so so that you know in the sea of people um you know i i i'm looking for the people that are struggling that are problem because the people probably don't recognize you know the subtle signs or the you know who's having trouble um because it could be quite serious um but you know going back to the original question yeah, there's probably way more people with arrhythmias, especially now that we've got a lot more aging athletes doing the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they might have some underlying, you know, pathology or physiologic pathway in their heart that's just not ready for this or, or it can't handle it. Hmm. So you talked a little bit about some of the things that you do as as the uh, the medical director of uh, the Muskoka Half Ironman. What mm-hmm. else are you looking for on course when you are as in that role? What are the common things you see? So the common things I see are hypo uh, hyperthermia. Uh, I see hyponatremia consistently uh, year after year. The years that I am the most worried about athletes and the and and the um, the years that have the most medical presentations to the tent are the years that race conditions are perfect. Okay. So like in that nice, you know, seventy percent humidity range, twenty three to twenty six, you know, sun cloud mix, because people people look at the external stuff and they go, okay, like it's a beautiful day. I'm going to have like a great race. They won't appreciate the physiologic stuff that's happening under the skin and the stresses. Like, you know, sure you don't have the heat stress as much as it would be if it was 32 or 34, but it's, it's still, uh, it's that chip away temperature. I feel good. I'm going to push myself a little bit further. I don't, I don't necessarily feel as thirsty as I would be. And so I'm not, I'm not respecting that thirst or they are, uh, they're not losing as much fluid as they would on a 32 to 34 day, but they've gone, gone in with a plan of hydration and nutrition. And like, I tell people consistently in the athlete meeting, like, don't drink on a plan. Your body has a fail-safe mechanism to tell you when to drink. And it's way less harmful to come in hypernatremic so high sodium in your blood as opposed to hyponatremic um where you know you get confusion dizziness uh and, you know that's when your heart can go a little berserk seizures all these things that and it's harder to, it's easier to hydrate after than to take away fluid because you've taken in too much of this hypotonic fluid so like water has 
you know, zero, if maybe a little bit of sodium in it, depending where you're drinking it from, but your body's blood level is at 137 millimole. So that, that's 137 millimole gradient that your body's got a gap where like any of the sport drinks, okay, maybe it's at a hundred and ten and it's a smaller gap, but it's going to chip away at you. If you drink on a plane and drink too much, um, your sodium will drift down. So like drink to thirst, eat solid nutrition for your carbohydrates or for the, or, uh, for the fuel, um, because then you don't get the excessive water. They don't necessarily need and, you know, get sweat tested. So you know how much sodium your body needs and replenish it, uh, over the, over the course of the race. Mm, that's so, really and good. It, and I, and I like uh, the hype. Uh, so in the tent, <laughs> they, the athletes generally don't like me because I have a Gatorade jug that I mix up, you know, hypertonic Gatorade solution. So I, not only I put extra Gatorade to make it palatable, but I put half of a box of table salt in there <laughs> and I stir it up and it tastes like garbage, but you know, the whole pickle juice and the mustard and, you know, it, it's very similar to that, but now I'm giving sodium as salt, right? So, um, I would, um, I, I give them, I give anybody who comes anywhere near my medical tent a shot of it. And they're like, oh my God, that sucks, but damn, I feel good. <laughs> so, so it's a, it's an easy way, uh, you know, rather than trying to get them to mash down some pretzels or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, and so they, anybody, whether that's, you know, GI distress or, you know, cardiac or hyperthermic, they, they get it because almost everybody has some element of hyponatremia. And again, I'd rather them run a little high than stay persistently low. Um, I love treating uh, hyperthermia patients because um, we do one of two things. We've got body bags in the in the medical tent, and we put an athlete in there. We fill uh, fill with some ice, um, and we run a hose uh, in there to keep the water moving and keep them cool. And it cools it down super quick. Or we put them on a um, on a perforated stretcher over top of a kiddie pool. And we have ice water that we circulate over top of them. So it's always getting cool. And then I put hoses down the top of their tri-suit and up the bottom of the tri-suit. And I'm known, honestly, um, in this industry for being um, facetious or passionate about rectal thermometers. <laughs> <laughs> so, We're all known for something, Rich. I know. Like, and, and honestly, that... I got, um, uh, the, the company that I work with Odyssey medical, uh, they, they got me a, uh, a rectal thermometer and they had a big unveiling ceremony this year because I have like one of a handful of rectal thermometers at sporting events in, you know, North America. Um, um, because like, if, if you think about it, if you're trying to truly measure somebody's temperature, if you get a tympanic or ear temperature, the temperature is off because you've got fluid in there uh, because you've been sweating. And so it's not going to be a true, um, a true, uh, measure of your heart rate or your, your temperature. Same thing in the mouth, you know, you, you often are panting and breathing and you, and so you got evaporative cooling happening in the mouth. So that's not accurate. We know that armpits aren't accurate. So where else is there a place to stick a, a thermometer other than up your bum? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always say, I'm very sorry. I apologize for this. And I, up it goes, but you know, <laughs> 
it allows us to accurately monitor uh, um, when I'm treating somebody because you, the problem that happens when you just, if somebody's hyperthermic, A, you don't know where you're starting and B, you need to know when to stop because your body temperature will continue to drop if you, um, if you, if you cool too much. Um, so I, you know, the body's normal temperature is 36, nine, 37, somewhere in there, but you have to stop at around 38, 38, two, because it'll continue to cool and you don't want to go too low. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's what I've seen at other, uh, uh, other endurance events where I'm not the medical director or the lead guy, and this is just their protocol. And I'm like, hey, you guys, I'm going to stop. <laughs> So what is one of the things at a race that you're most proud of in terms of the support that you've given an athlete? Um, in like me, myself and the medical tent or is it? Yeah. Team? I thought I would ask like, what is the worst thing that happened? I figured this is maybe a nicer way to ask it. And, and <laughs> I don't know if we want to know the worst, maybe this. not the worst thing, but like what one thing that has happened that you are most proud of, of the medical support that you've offered? Hmm. Um, you know, probably the worst thing and the proudest thing that happened to me, um, was in 2014. Um, I decided to volunteer as a, a mobile medic, a motorcycle medic at Mont Tremblant on the Ironman there. Cause my wife was doing the Ironman, uh, at that time. And, uh, you know, certainly offered from a physician point of view, a really cool way to see the race and experience the race, uh, and see your wife out on the, on the bike course at the same time and cheer her on and be able to be in a motorcycle and, you know, bike beside her for a while. But, you know, for those of you that have done Tremblant, you go out onto the highway and it was super hot, um, that day that I was uh, volunteering and we, I came, uh, I always say one of the best communication tools that we have on the course is not a cell phone. It's not a radio, it's each other. Um, and when I was, uh, when I was on the back of the motorcycle, athletes were like, they're back there, back there. So that we turned around on the motorcycle and went back and, you know, every athlete's telling us to go back. And so as a point of reference, the information that you as athletes collectively provide the medical team, but even the team who's executing the race in general is invaluable because when I got there, there was a 72 year old, um, athlete like sprawled out on the highway, unconscious. And, uh, and so when I got off the motorcycles coming, she was just starting to come into, and, you know, you go through your, uh, you, we've got sort of a way of how to approach, make sure the environment's safe, keep the athletes away, make sure that you can enter the scene safely and then um, work on the athlete. And so the first things you do, you know, your airway, breathing, circulation, making sure those things, but more importantly, because she was, you know, fell off a bike, which was moving probably at 30 to 35 kilometers an hour. You know, she, there's a good chance, especially if somebody has fallen off and had a level of unconsciousness, you know, a C-spine or neck injury could have been a real thing. So I got down on my hands and knees and pavement was like blistering hot and immobilized her head and neck for 45 minutes while we waited for, uh, waited for ambulance and uh, EMS to show up. And we, you know, you just keep going through the, you know, is she breathing? You know, is she, is she circulating and, and, and what's her mental status? You just, and I'm, 
I'm there by myself and a motorcyclist who has no medical background. And, you, you know, I'm radioing to the rest of my team to get somebody to come and help us do the rest of the assessment. But I know that the vital stuff, the ABCs were intact and, and she's freaking out because she didn't, she had no idea what had happened. Um, and, you know, eventually EMS came, took her away to the hospital and, you know, she had an arrhythmia. You know, it was found that that was a cardiac cardiac case and she didn't have a stroke. She didn't have a seizure. She had a funny heart rate, heartbeat because of cumulative stressors caused her blood pressure to suddenly drop, caused her to fall off her bike and, and, you know, have a period of unconsciousness uh, on the ground. Um, but, you know, in, when you're a medic in the field or, you know, even in the medical tent, it's, it, 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 you have what you have at your disposal. And at that time I had like stethoscope, I had a t- piece of, you know, little fanny pack with some tape gauze in it. And, but that's all I had to work with. So it's MacGyver medicine really. Um, and that's probably, you know, th- that probably is the proudest moment because the athletes helped me find this patient and I was able to provide good care to observe her and get her to a definitive facility. And, um, and then, you know, she, otherwise if she had woken up, she might've easily gotten back up on her bike mm. and then gone, pushed herself again and had a fatal, you know, incident that, you know, she, that was the near miss that she had. So that's probably, yeah, that's the proudest moment. I like, and then year after year, um, that I do the 70.3 here and I get, get a little emotional. Well, the hospital's calling me. They can turn that off and call you later. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, year after year, I have an amazing team of volunteers that help me out at the 70.3 here in Muskoka. And, um, I'm always astounded at the generosity of, of, you know, nurses, doctors, massage therapists, physiotherapists, chiropractors, EMS, advanced care, first responders that come and want to be part of my team. And my team's like about 85 people strong. Wow. And we cover end to end of that race. We've got, uh, we've got people in boats. We've got extraction points on the swim course. We've got people milling around in the crowd as people are getting into the water, looking for people that are in this anxious state and, and are at risk of having, you know, something happen uh, once they get into the water, getting it onto the bike course. We have, you know, SAG vehicles that are dedicated medical. We've got usually about 15 doctors or nurses um, or EMS um, uh, paramedics or fire that have medical training biking with the athletes, because then we have the ability to talk with the athletes as they're moving um, and provide care on on the course and it's uh and then when they get into the run we have the same thing we've got you know mobile medics we've got medical stations along the course and then at the finish line we've got you know really good comprehensive you know acute and non-acute medical tent and we've got an awesome team of soft tissue therapists 15 to 20 soft tissue therapists to help with that you know post-race massage and i've never seen that in any other events um uh, that uh, I volunteered at, you know, either, you know, local, national, international level, it's, you know, and why do I do it? Well, I want to make sure that you guys have your best day. 
And I don't want you to have a second of thought that you are not safe, that you're not supported, that you as a physiologic mechanistic being aren't going to go and finish the race and have a great day. And if you aren't, we're there to help you in the best possible way we can. I love it. I love it. There it is. Do 70.3 Muskoka next year, everyone. I think I'm planning to do it, so I'll be there. Be in good hands. Exactly. Yeah. I can push to the max and know Rich will be uh, just trailing me at the motorbike, keeping me safe all day. Yeah. And I'm always, um, looking for, always looking for people that are passionate and want to help out. So, uh, yeah, if anybody's interested, they just get in touch with me. Cool. Yeah, definitely uh, check that out if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to the Pan Am Games soon in uh, Chile. What does yeah. uh, your role look like there? Um, yeah, I leave on Saturday for it. Uh, I'm hoping to catch some of Kona and track you uh, as on your journey um, you know, while I'm in the airport. But uh, yeah, I'm going. Uh, I'm super, super excited. Uh, this is my first time going to major games in, uh, the, in the able-bodied world. Um, I usually, uh, like I've gone to uh, the Parapan Am Games in Lima, Peru in 2019. I've done a couple of provincial level um, para games, and um, so I'm going down. I'm covering uh, open water swimming, triathlon, wake surfing, or sorry, wakeboard, water ski, uh, handball. The women's handball team, skateboarding, uh, and sailing. And uh, so I've got six really amazing teams of, of Canadian athletes that are uh, um, some are trying to get to Paris um, as and this is their qualifier um, and uh, just be, you know, a part of of something that I can do for my country. Like I'm not uh, going to join the army anytime soon, but this maybe is my way of contributing uh, to some national pride and uh, and so super as you can see I've got my uh, cycling uh, Canada jersey from uh, a couple of the para athletes uh, that I helped out down in uh, Lima. Um, it's 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 a super unique experience that as a sport doctor or it's a, as a doctor in general, you know, to be able to go and represent your country. I'm never going to the Olympics or any of these games as an athlete. But if I can be there and support the people that can, then it's it's uh, it's an honor. That's gonna be cool. We'll have to have you back for a podcast after that to hear all yeah. the crazy stories from that because there's so much on the line at an event like that. I feel like you're gonna oh, see yeah. some amazing inspirational and defeats all in all in one. Uh, yeah. One just go before there. this, uh, just before this, I had a meeting with the with the triathlon team and the coaches and just they're all jazzed up and ready to go and kick some ass so do you know who's on the canadian team for triathlon there by any chance? uh yeah uh uh dominica or dominica um uh yeah jim nikki jim nikki is on there uh we've got emmy legault we've got desiree uh um Ridnor, Ridnor, I think. yeah Ridnor, jeremy Briand. uh we've got Brackhole, martin uh soby uh liam nice. donnelly so good good solid team yeah, that's a solid squad. No, Tyler Mislichuk. I guess he's uh, done for the year. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's too bad. It's all good. Yeah, that's a solid team. Looking forward yeah. to tracking that one. Um, yeah. Finally, I wanted to give a shout out. I know you're race director for Trimuskokan. What is, uh, what's that race all about for our uh, listeners if they want to check that out? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a grassroots event. Um, so 
as you know, I mentioned earlier, we've got a um, strong triathlon history in our community, like dating back to 1987. And uh, so um, we have had, uh, you know, a, a, a really strong relationship with the Subaru triathlon series in our community. And, you know, they, when I first started doing triathlons, we had a, a, a sprint and a long course triathlon. And that was in the chase format. I don't know if you guys were born at that point. <laughs> That's a legendary event though. I've heard, I, know. I feel like a couple of the guys in their like forties or fifties in our club rave about like the old, yeah, it's... Subaru chase. And I'm like, what, yeah. I don't know what this event is before. Oh, my time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I know it was awesome. Um, so that, uh, and then, so what, you know, it morphed over time. There was the 5150 and the 70.3. And then the 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 race uh, um, director said, okay, we're just, we're going to drop the short course so we can focus on the long course. But that really left a bit of a hole in our community. Um, I mean, there was the Port Sydney Kids Triathlon that had an adult division, um, but there, were, it, there wasn't that kind of gateway triathlon in our community. So we sat down, um, like Trimuskoka is our triathlon club, and uh, I founded it with uh, another friend of mine back in 2010, basically to save the 70.3. We raised money to pay the licensing fee uh, um, in 2010, 11, and 12 until we found other ways to make it a sustainable, uh, sustainable um, model. But you know, out of that, we we sat down as a club, you know, I think 40 of us, and we said, okay, what are the best possible elements of uh, of a triathlon that that exists? Well, we want it to be, you know, we want to have awesome swag, great food, you know, real excitement, you know, having it fun for the spectators. And and all these other reasons then and and at the night it's like oh yeah there's like a swim bike run in there somewhere too so <laughs> like it was the race itself was an afterthought it's the experience and the atmosphere that um, that we like wholeheartedly focus on and what our race is really really well known for like we sell out every year we max it out at uh, just shy of 500 participants last year we sold out in a month. Um, and like our price point is reasonable, uh, compared to, you know, the, the, the companies, um, because it's a not-for-profit race, uh, 100% of the proceeds that we raise from this go into uh, another project that I'm involved with. That's called the muscle project. So the muscle project stands for a movement for strength, conditioning, and active lifestyles for everyone. And what we're raising money for is uh, so we can try Muskoka along with the town and some partners can install publicly accessible fitness equipment throughout our community so that you remove the barriers of uh, accessibility, you know, like uh, socioeconomic status, age, ability, all these things that that would stand in the way of somebody being physically engaged and physically active and being able to move. Um, so we're at a bit of a tipping point now where we're going to actually in, do our first installation, hopefully this winter. And then it'll just grow from there. We're going to install another fitness park here, another fitness park through our community. And so that becomes a connected trail of fitness through our community that nobody cannot access and not have the ability to engage in the lifestyle, a, a physical and active lifestyle from a preventative health point of view. Um, because, you know, the thing that's probably changed the most in the last 
five, 10 years in the medical world as how powerful exercise is on all levels for, uh, from a medical point of view, physical, physiologic, and especially mental health. And if people don't have a way to do that, then you're really not providing the best medical care to allow them to have excellent full and a full quality of life. And so that's what the, this muscle project's for. So we raise money year after year with this, with this race to be able to, to fund, uh, fund this program. I think there's officially nothing that you don't do. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> my I, list that I read out at the beginning is just like a sliver of all the things you do. <laughs> I hate banking. I don't yeah. like the bank. I, I actually get panic attack going into a bank. So my wife does hundred percent of the banking. <laughs> okay. So we found one thing that you don't do, but uh, we did invite you on because of all these things, you are an endurance icon to us, but I'd love to know who's one of your endurance icons. Ah, uh, boy, you know, um, I think I, I, I can't say I've got one, but I've you can, got, you, have, you can have more than one. Okay. So I, uh, you know, Simon, uh, Whitfield for kicking off the whole revolution of triathlon in Canada, like really, really plays well to me and his career, you know, I wouldn't say solely started here, but he was part of that, uh, Subaru chase race. Um, uh, and, and that was right at the beginning and it was kind of cool having Sam McGlone and Craig Alexander and him racing in my little town when they were starting their careers. It was really, really cool. Um, you know, Lionel Sanders, uh, has a special place in my heart because there's, you know, he's crazy, no limits. Um, he's willing to try and, and he pushes the limits of what his body's able to do. He, you know, is an emotional racer. Um, uh, he wears everything on his sleeve. Um, and, you know, I admire him for, for being so open and verbal about his process. Um, so, you know, and, and his intensity is just, you know, ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so I've always wanted to, he's on my bucket list of, of people to meet. And actually, I met him when he was just breaking out. Uh, uh, Sean Bechtel was, uh, was a big racer here uh, back in the day. And then, uh, and I was biking on the course as a medic uh, for the 70.3. And, and I thought it was Sean, because they had the same kit running up this crazy hill that we have here. And it was him. And, and Sean was like nowhere to be seen. So, you know, I thought, oh my God, this guy's going to like, like make waves uh, at the, and in the triathlon scene. So that was like right when he was starting, you know, the other person that I would say, and you know, most people don't know him is uh, his name's Don McCormick. Um, he's, he was, he passed away a couple of years ago and he was a legend, local legend in uh, triathlon. And um, he's set the stage and helped establish Muskoka and Huntsville as a triathlon Mecca. And there was nothing that couldn't be done, uh, in the eyes of Don. Um, you, you, it was like pure inspiration to see how he would help anybody get into the sport or encourage them to, to, uh, to, to be engaged in at some level within the sport. And, you know, he would, go and do a triathlon and, and then he would finish you and then he'd go out on his bike. He'd take pictures. He'd be the official photographer for the race at the same time. Like, you know, 
I think I learned a lot of lessons and modeled myself after him uh, and, you know, making sport a community platform uh, for change. And, and, and that really, uh, he's probably, you know, at the top of my list of being an endurance icon. Well, thank you. And I think listeners can actually understand why it was so hard to find any sort of focus in this podcast, because you do so much. And uh, <laughs> I know we pulled on some fun threads of the stories, but thank you so much, Rich. This has been a total delight. Oh, my pleasure. Um, for anyone who's listening that either wants to listen to your podcast, book an appointment with you, <sighs> sign up to be a medical support to uh, the race, where's the best place for them to follow you or get in touch with you? Um, so my clinic website is reactivatemuskoka.com and the same way that you found me, uh, you know, your doctor can refer, uh, to see me, um, and I do in person or virtual. I mean, it's, if it's a physical problem, or a physical issue, I've done some physical virtual, it's more challenging, but, uh, I can do either or, um, on there, people can contact through my office uh, to get involved uh, with the 70.3 or, you know, I'm on the Instagram. I've got my personal account. If you want to see my crazy antics, it's um, uh, I, I'll give you the link so you can put it in your show notes. Um, mm -hmm. And then I've got a professional one that's a little bit more serious, but it's still a little bit wacky. Um, uh, but you, if you search up Rich Trenholm, um, there's there's two profiles on there. Um, and on the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine website, so C-A-S-E-M, um, you can find links to our podcast, but it's also on Spotify and Apple Music and SoundCloud. The, the Spotify and Apple Music have the newer episodes, but there's a whole bunch of older ones, including one on exertional rhabdomyolysis. That's really, really good. That uh, That is on uh, SoundCloud. So um, it's called Canadian Sport Medicine Review, and uh, that's uh, that's our podcast. And it's taking a little bit of a hiatus, but we're going to get back to it soon. So just like in real life, you're absolutely everywhere online. Too. Everywhere. So <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> well, thanks, Rich. This was absolutely a delight. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my God. My pleasure. Anytime. Wow. How great was that? I always learned so much from these endurance icons. If you enjoyed the podcast as well, please consider liking us across social media, subscribing to us on YouTube, or giving us a five-star rating on wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate you and your support so much. We wish you happy training, and we'll see you back next week.